0: Please open your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2, and when you find that, please stand with me. We're going to read God's Word. We're going to read Acts 2, 42 to 47, as we did last week, because today we're looking at part two of what the church must be. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. This is God's Word. As anyone might have need, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is from you. And we, we just acknowledge, Lord, our dependence upon you today, that there is nothing we can do apart from you. And we pray, Lord, as we open up your word today, that you would speak to our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would change our lives, change our minds, change, change us into the people that you would have us to be. And we pray that it would be for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today is part two of what the church must be, and the main idea is this, that the church must be a holy, united, and loving community committed to God and what matters to Him. We looked at that last week. Last week we looked at the first four marks of God-pleasing church, that what the church must be committed to. Uh, First we saw that it was God-centered worship that we ought to be committed to, for God's glory and our good. And secondly, Christ-centered preaching, expositional preaching, reading the word, explaining, and then applying the text. And Bible-centered beliefs, uh, agreeing on core doctrine, agreeing to disagree on peripheral teachings, non-essentials, agreeing on core doctrines such as the authority of scripture, and the virgin birth, and the deity of Christ, and the substitutionary atonement, but then agreeing to disagree on non-essentials. We also talked about God-dependent prayer being one of the marks of the God-pleasing church, communicating with God with a heavenly-minded perspective. And so today we're looking now at the next four things, and so I just want to dive right in, and so as, as a community committed to God and what matters to Him, the church must be committed to, and this is the fifth mark, age-integrated ministry. Age-integrated ministry. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 39. Now, we've been reading Acts two forty-two to 47. The context here is the birth of the early church, the day of Pentecost, Peter's taking his stand um, authoritatively amongst the people, and preaching, and he preaches from the prophet Joel, and then he speaks specifically of Jesus, and when he does so, he lets them know that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, and as they heard these words, they were pierced to their hearts, their, their consciences were, 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 were pierced, they were, they were convicted, and they asked, they said, what shall we do? And so Peter says to them, repent, turn from your sins, and turn to God, and and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus. And then you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this in verse 39. He says, for the promise is for you and your children, not just you, but you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Whoever God will call to himself, this is who the promise is for. It's not just for one ethnic group. It's not just for one age group. It's for all who God will call to himself. And so, we ask this question, what is age integrated ministry? If you think about it, let's just look at it here in the book of Acts for a few moments. You see it here in in 239, but look what happens in verse 41. Those who... Who received his word were baptized. As many as God would call to himself that day were baptized because they had come to believe. They practiced believer's baptism. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 3,000 about. They were were keeping track, but it was a a round figure. Might have been a little less, might have been a little more. But it was about, it says around 3,000 souls, literally persons. Men, women, boys, and girls. Old and young. You look on into Acts chapter 16 as things progressed and God raised up leadership and the the Word of God went out. You might remember with me that Paul and Silas were preaching the gospel and they were imprisoned and they were singing hymns of praise to God around midnight while they're in this prison, chained. And there were people in the prison that were supposed to be in there because they did something wrong. Peter and uh, Paul and Silas had preached the gospel. But about midnight they were praying and singing praises to God and suddenly there came a great earthquake and the chains were uh, loosened. They could have escaped. They didn't. And the jailer came down and fell before them and said, what must I do to be saved? He wasn't thinking about uh, anything but important things at that point. And, and they said, believe, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's not where the, the verse ends. It says you will be saved, you and your household. Now some have mistakenly taken this to mean that uh, he would be saved and then his household will just kind of get brought along because he made the commitment. That's a, totally false. If You just look in the context. Verse 32, they spoke the word of God together with him to with all who were in his house everyone who lived in his household and those households were extended households moms dads kids grandparents strangers aliens uh, people that had come through town traveling and everyone in that house heard the word of God verse 33 he took them that very hour of the night washed their wounds and immediately he was baptized he and all his literally he and all his verse 34 And he brought them into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in the Lord with his whole household. His whole household had believed. You see this age-integrated, multi-generational, intergenerational, all ages together picture in the early church. Men, women, boys and girls, households. So the question of what is age-integrated ministry is quite simply the church and its households Engaging in its main priorities, that be it God's word and prayer and fellowship and outreach, with all ages involved. With all ages involved, rather than age segregated, where you split everybody up into separate age groups. Not a bad thing, but should not be the primary thing. The idea is it's ministry focused on the household or family unit, rather than its individual members. It's a multi-generational approach to life and ministry that the scriptures portray. Now it's seen throughout scripture, already you've you've felt the cognitive dissonance because this is not what most Christians have experienced, because this is not what most Christians have been taught. But you see it all the way through scripture. It is modeled, it is taught, it is encouraged, it is assumed in almost every setting in scripture. Part of the fabric of life amongst God's people. You go as far back as you'd like, but I'll start with Exodus chapter 12, the Passover. Passover. They were to gather their whole household together. It wasn't just the moms and the dads, and the kids offend for themselves, you know. They were all to be together. There was an important aspect of that because if they didn't do what was instructed, the angel of God would pass over and the firstborn would be struck down. So they wanted to protect that firstborn. They were together. Deuteronomy chapter 6. You know it well, but you were to teach... God's truth, diligently, day by day, in a in a uh, a uh, organized fashion, um, to your children. Diligently, you were to do this. Joshua twenty four fifteen. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There is a a corporate aspect to that. First Kings chapter eight and Second Chronicles chapter six. Solomon prays, and all the people are gathered—men, women. And all the youth and children. Nehemiah chapter 8 says that all the people gathered. Men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. All who could listen with understanding. Go with me to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Speaking of passing the faith on to, from generation to generation. We'll begin at verse 4. And basically, it says in verse 4, we will not conceal them from their children. Conceal what? Well, the things that we have heard and known and our fathers have told us, things they had been taught. But we will tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Verse 5 For he established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. That they should make them known to their children. It was was their job to do that. It was their role to do that. Verse 6 says that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born. Even the unborn that they would have a chance to know when they are born. Why? That they may arise and tell them to their children. You can count four generations here that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God that is that's the pattern of scripture in terms of ministry you go into the new testament and you see Jesus feeding the 5,000 they got the lunch from a young boy but it says that we always all you know feeding the 5,000 that was 5,000 men there was probably 15,000 there Ephesians chapter 6, you talk about children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is an ongoing, day by day, intentional teaching and instructing and guiding with wisdom and with God's word. It's a role that we should take very seriously. It's a role that we should be integrally involved in every single day. Why, why is age integrated ministry so important? Well, it's very simply because it is the way that the faith is passed on most effectively. We can, we can tell by our own testimonies in that regard. The faith is to be passed on from parent to child, from older to younger, older men teaching younger men, older women te- teaching younger women. It's the Titus 2 model. I remember Paul reminding Timothy of this, that he was, he was uh, the, 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 uh, the holder of a sincere faith. And at first dwelt in his grandma, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. 2 Timothy 1.5. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14, it, Paul says, you've known the scriptures since childhood. Well, who did he learn from? His mommy and his grandma. known the scriptures since childhood. His family taught him, but so did Paul. So did other people. That's how it's supposed to be. The home doing its job of teaching the Word of God and the church engaging in the process, both supporting one another. See, the church must practice a a, uh, pattern of all ages interacting uh, together in worship and learning and serving, um, fulfilling the great command to love God, the great commission to make disciples in and through present and future generations. But you can't do that in isolation. You can't do that when you're separated from one another. The church must practice this balance of all ages, worshiping, learning, and serving together. Um, the church and its households are to interact amongst generations, not always splitting them up. You know, for over 1,500 years, that was the way the church operated. That was the way the church interacted. It wasn't until the, the, uh, the past 75 to 100 years that things have changed. You know, that many consider, what many consider the norm today in the American church model is actually Abnormal. You see it in your Bible. You see what the Bible teaches. And you wonder how we got so far off from that in our church. See, it wasn't until the introduction of the Sunday school in the early 1900s did Christian education take an institutionalized approach and get taken out of the family's hands, get taken out of the household's hands. Sunday school was meant to reach kids working in factories that were unchurched, that were unsaved, that came from unbelieving homes. That's how the Sunday school got started. But the church adopted it as the primary way of teaching the faith. And so today, many see age-segregated ministry as the primary means of educating children, youth, and adults around biblical truths. That is an abnormal uh, way of of doing it. It doesn't mean it can't work. It just doesn't work as well as when you follow a biblical pattern of doing things. See, age-integrated ministry is one of the most ignored of biblical teachings. It is all the way through Scripture. It is literally assumed, and so for the past 10 years, I have dedicated my life to appealing to pastors and church leaders and church members and anyone who will listen, those who have not been taught it, but read it and see it in their Bibles and wonder why the church is so age-segregated at times around age and life stage. See, what we have done is we have adopted the education model prevalent in America, with its theories and assumptions, which, by the way, our educators, the, amongst the, the best and brightest among us, will always tell you those are always changing. <laughs> education theory and assumption is always changing. Talk to an educator. Uh, but, so we have adopted an education model rather than a biblical model. See, first, educa- first Christian education is to happen in and through households day by day. teaching. An example, full immersion, just like you learn a language. And by the way, if you say, well, I don't have any kids in our house, it doesn't matter who's in the household. The household is to be interacting together. Husbands and wives, parents and children, grandparents and and aunts and uncles and friends and neighbors. This is the way, you know, we've institutionalized the church so much. It's to be organic, it's to be simple, it's to be real in everyday life. Secondly, uh, Christian education is to happen amongst the gathered church when the church gathers together. And third, it ought to be age-segregated ministry. Uh, But many churches have made age-segregated ministry its primary focus. The The majority of their paid and volunteer resources have been put into it. I did children's ministry that way for years. I'll tell you what you get when households are not fully engaged in the process. What you get is, Maybe a lot of numbers at times, but you get stunted growth. You get stunted spiritual growth. Uh, Generations that want to be entertained. uh, Disconnected from the life of the larger body of which they're a part. That's why I'm so glad that grace is so committed to integrating ages together in as many settings as we can. Balancing that with times where age groups are separated. But churches should put their best efforts at equipping heads of households to lead spiritually. Every pastor ought to be considered an age-integrated pastor. Uh, Every every, uh, church leader ought to be an intergenerational leader. It's biblical, it is God-honoring, and it's the best way to pass the faith on from generation to generation. Now, it doesn't mean you can't do anything else, but it means we will put our best energies into what long-term will be most fruitful. Uh, Eric Wallace, in his book, Uniting Church and Home, says this, Churches in ever-increasing numbers are seeking to move away from from methods of ministry that are in reality working against the establishment of faithful generations. A renewed focus on multi-generational vision, heart-level relationships, and nurturing in everyday life, the household discipleship vision, are slogans of this revival. Thus, we see a a movement away from the traditional age-segregated approach to an age integrated household approach. The bottom line is this on this point the primary place for Christian growth is in the home. And the primary gathering for believers is in the worship service with all generations together. Uh, for example, things like very good things like Sunday school, small groups, youth groups, children's ministry, they are not replacements or substitutes for families reading the word and praying together or for the whole body gathering together for worship. They are good supplements, they are, they, but they should not replace the main things. So we need to be committed to age-integrated uh, ministry, and therefore believers need to engage at home and at church intergenerationally around God's word, prayer, fellowship, and outreach as often as possible. The next, the next mark of a God-pleasing church, in addition to age-integrated ministry, the church must be... Committed to is gospel changed relationships. Key, gospel changed relationships. You know, a lot of churches say, oh, we're we're committed to relationships. Well, what kind? I'd like to, to present to you the, the gospel-changed version in the body of Christ. We have a lot of things in common. A lot of things. I'm just gonna point out four things. They all begin with F for people like me that that need alliteration. Uh, First, we have a common faith. A common faith uh, in Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 2 of Acts, verse 38. He says, repent, each one of you. Now, that means turn to God from sin. Turn to God in sorrow for your sin. And then be baptized. Baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, he here says baptized in the name of Jesus because the context is he's showing how Jesus is Lord in Christ. But Jesus himself gave the pattern to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which signifies control and direction by God in a person's life. When you are baptized as a believer, you're saying, my, the direction of my life and the control of my life has been given over to God. That's what you're acknowledging when you get baptized. So, Gospel change. We have a faith in Christ. We are, we are, we are also brothers and sisters. Brother, brethren, we're family. We're family. Now look at Acts 2.42. What were they doing? Well, what were they doing in this common discipleship that was going on in the, in the early church? Well, they were, they were committing themselves, they were devoting themselves continually over and over again, day by day, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Fellowship. That's the family of God. Interdependence and mutual care. They're hallmarks of fellowship. The the Greek word is koinonia. You've you've heard this word before. Koinonia. It's the first occurrence in the New Testament of this word. And every time it's used, it has to do with sharing of some kind. It has to do with partnership, togetherness. Uh, It's a beautiful word. That's why it is used so much, but also that's why it's so misunderstood. And why sometimes it's misused. Hey, we just had some great fellowship. Well, what'd you do? Well, we talked about, you know, the sports games, or we talked about this. But we just had, we enjoyed one another's company. Well, you can do that in a club. Christian fellowship is, is, is totally other than, than the kind of fellowship you might have in a club or in, in another association. Um, look with me at, at verse 44, Acts 2, 44. Those who believed were together. There you go, the, the, togetherness i'm an italian so i like this okay as as often as i can get people together i'm happy all right i got my alone time but i got to get people together often right it's just part of it's i don't know the the dna or something it's part of the italian thing but but those who who believed were together and they had all things in common now i want you to see a connection here all things in common the greek word for common is koinos where you get the, uh, the term Koine Greek, common Greek. Now, it's connected to koinonia. They had all things in common. They were committed to fellowship. They had all things in common. Uh, the Greek word there is, uh, be, means belonging to several. It, it, again, the, the root of koinonia, fellowship, and it means participation in, communion with, giving to other people. Let me give you an example of Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul is talking about the unity of the body of Christ brought about by the Holy Spirit of God. And he says this in verse 2. He says, After he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, he says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace there's an example of fellowship there's an example of having things in common with one another Um, the early church's fellowship was focused by the way on mutual generosity and sharing they didn't claim that anything they had was their stuff don't touch my stuff don't scratch my stuff No, they weren't like that. They they had everything in common, but it was because they were gospel changed, not because they were just somehow in the first century, people were just so much more better. No, they were sinners like us. They were possessive like us. But then they started to share because they had been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what did they do? Well, they sold their stuff, uh, their possessions as need demanded, by the way. Some of them still owned homes. Now, you can see that in the next portion when Ananias and Sapphira and chapter five and things like that. But they didn't just throw everything into a big pile and say, okay, you know, uh, everything is, the church is now. They didn't become a commune, okay? What they did was as there were needs, they sold their possessions and shared them. And it says that there was not a needy person among them. When the church operates the way the church is supposed to operate, there are no needy among us. So if there are needy among us, we need to operate a little differently. Now, let me me mention this to you. Their fellowship was, was a a hallmark of their fellowship was mutual generosity and sharing. Now that is very different than our use of the word fellowship today. It is contrary to our use of the fellowship today. And the thing is, because our use is not the biblical use. Fellowship is not a sentimental feeling. Fellowship are, is not warm fuzzies. Fellowship is not feeling good about yourself after you've been with other people. Those might be uh, byproducts of true fellowship, but they are not true fellowship. I'll give you an example of true fellowship. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, we, were, we had such a fond affection for you. There was love. And he said, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives, our very selves. Because you would become very dear to us. That's fellowship. When you, when you don't just teach, but you share your whole life. And that means the stuff you own as well. Now again, they didn't sell everything. Some still owned houses. They look at verse 46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. <laughs> okay, they didn't give everything away. They kept what was necessary. Um... And they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. But they met day after day, and they met regularly. And they ate meals together in one another's home. And they broke bread, literally the bread, literally the celebrating the Lord's Supper. And the community gathered along the lines of a a voluntary association called a habura, where the central focus was a common meal that they shared together. It's important for us to eat together because we then start sharing things about our, our lives, we don't just, you know, uh, shovel the food in our mouths, but we start to interact, we start to talk, we start to share. Not just around peripheral things, but more important things. So they did all these things, and within the church, there was a spirit of rejoicing. Uh, verse 47, they were praising God. There was a spirit of rejoicing and generosity, they were praising God, and then outside, they, they experienced popular goodwill amongst the people. Uh, amongst unbelievers. It says that they were having favor with all the people. But well, how long did this example of Christian love and brotherhood last? Not long. Acts 5.1, Ananias and Sapphira conspire against, together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test. Their sharing maintained only when their spiritual unity was intact and active. So let me ask you, do you experience fellowship in the body of Christ in, in the biblical sense of the term? If not, you are probably not giving anything away, materially or relationally. Some people are tight with their stuff, okay? We can admit that, right? But some people are closed to self-disclosure, to talk about anything going on in their own life. And if you can't give to those in need, or if you can't share anything real about yourself with, with others, true fellowship is probably not happening in your life. But God wants it to. And it is, a, it is a work of the Holy Spirit. True fellowship is a work of the Holy Spirit. As we draw near to God, as we draw close to God, God does something among us. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. That you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8, 5. They first gave themselves to the Lord, Paul says, and then to us by the will of God reality of god gospel change relationships is seen when we reach out to others and give of ourselves when we share what we have and we share ourselves as well there's a barbecue after church today great opportunity to share our lives together hang out and talk something else we have in common though we are we are recipients of a common faith we are in the same family of god But we also have a common friction. Anytime you put people together, people are going to fuss. Like a road trip with my family. We're going to start one this week. All right? Seven people in a van. There's going to be fussing. There's going to be fighting. I'll guarantee you. If not, something's wrong. Nobody's at the wheel. It's like around the dinner table at our house. It's not a love feast, not a love fest. We love each other, but it's real. I'll tell you what, if, you, if your interaction with the church is all just, hey, how you doing, brother? How you doing, sister? You're not experiencing true fellowship, and you're not getting the friction. You need the friction. You know, it's like the whole thing about the oyster thing, you know, and the little, the little you know, you know, you, know the, you know the story. But, you know, something beautiful comes out of some, some irritation, Sometimes we irritate each other. Let's be honest. I, sometimes, I'm sure my voice irritates some of you, and you're like, man, I've been listening to this for three years. But I'll tell you what, the word is good, is it not? The word is good. But let me say this. Friction is part of the body of Christ. And, and you shouldn't be experiencing effusive, you know, love fest all the time. Just appropriate interaction with each other. Don't lay it on too thick. Don't stand too far back. Just, just be appropriate, right? Alistair Begg says building the church is like building with bananas. They don't fit together very well. See, bricks are easy. Bananas, yeah, it's hard. But, you know, I think. I, I, by the way, I would never use that kind of example. That's just I don't. I don't know where he got that. I'd much rather say the church building the church is like building with jello, okay, or eggs or something. A messy, complicated, sometimes fragile. Right? That's the way it is. But what does God say? First Peter chapter 2, verse 5. God says we are living stones. Living stones. Every believer is a living stone being built into a spiritual house that God is building. We each have a place. We each have a part. And God fits the body together just right. We also have a common future. Common future. See, that's why you can't just say, forget you, to the body of Christ. If you're a believer, you're gonna be with them in heaven. So, you know, can't we all just get along, right? Uh, We gotta get there. You can't just say, forget you, because we will be in heaven. Therefore, let us make sure that all is well between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Let us make sure that we appreciate our common faith, our common family, our common friction. Let's not make friction happen On purpose, though, okay? I realize my family tells me that sometimes. Well, you're just doing that to bug me. I'm like, yeah, it's so fun. I don't mean that, okay? Let's not do that kind of friction. It's the friction that just happens when when lives are close together, okay? And our our common future. Pray for those home fellowships that are starting soon. Uh, Within the next two years, our our leadership's hoping that a, a large percentage of our people will be involved in these kind of groups where true fellowship can happen. See, we're in a battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's a daily battle. We are not each other's enemy. We won't always like each other, but we ought to love each other. We are not each other's enemy. We are on the same team. The same team. Spiritual house. I love the way the Gospel Coalition put it, describing the church like this. Because the gospel removes both fear and pride, people should get along inside the church. Who could never get along outside of it? Because it points to a man who died for his enemies, the gospel creates relationships of service rather than selfishness. Because the gospel calls us to holiness, the people of God living loving bonds of mutual accountability and discipline. So The gospel creates a radically different community than anything that is in the world. Okay, two more marks left, two more marks left. First, the next mark is this, uh, humble, bold leadership. Humble, bold leadership. Now, in the early church, the Holy Spirit did some amazing things amongst the body of Christ. He set apart some in leadership roles as well. Peter and John took the lead. You see that in Acts chapter 3 through 5. Paul and Barnabas and Silas and others. Um, James, so zealous that the Jews uh, put him to death, killed him. Uh, but you see two, two offices in the, in the early church. Two leadership positions in the early church. Okay? First is elder, Elders. Those are, those are to be men, as God has ordained it, not, not, because, not because men figured this out. <laughs> um, but elders serve as spiritual overseers of the church. Now you see teaching on elders in First Timothy 3, uh, the Greek word is episkopos, overseer. In First Peter 5, the Greek word is pe- presbyteros, but it's also used interchangeably, uh, most noticeably in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, when Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he says this, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And so, there are elders in the church, overseers, shepherds, those who watch over the flock. Chapter six of Acts, there was a problem, Rose, the friction happens in the early church, and, uh, and, 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 they, and they, there was a complaint. But the, the, the apostle said, we are not going to neglect the word of God and prayer to wait on tables, literally to, to deacon tables. So what they do? They said, I'm gonna, we're going to devote ourselves to the, the word and prayer. Their main responsibility, necess- necessary to the life and growth of the church. Elders lead by, by teaching the word of God privately and Publicly. Publicly, in worship services, in other, in other settings, but privately. And also, one-on-one, uh, proclaiming truth and giving wise counsel. That's what elders are to do. They're to be examples of the flock. Elders feed the flock on the word. They, they guard the flock from false teaching. They guide the flock. Time must be taken by elders in ministering to each other, but also to, to the flock and praying for and with the flock. Then there are deacons in the early church, of which there were men and women. Phoebe, uh, uh, called a diakonos, the Greek word for deacon, Romans 16.1. Deacons serve as physical stewards of the church. They meet the physical needs of the church. Referring back in, in, in Acts chapter 6, where there was this problem in, literal, in, in verse 2, where he says, they say, we will not neglect the word of God to wait on tables. Literally, we won't neglect the word of God to deacon tables. The first deacons met physical needs. They distributed food to widows. That was the complaint. It wasn't happening. So they, and they, they managed the financial aspects of the church. The distribution of food. One aspect of allocating the resources of the church. Uh, deacons were appointed because of that dispute in the church. And deacons serve in such a way that edifies and, and unites the church. And by serving in these, these ways, deacons free the elders to do their responsibilities. God wants leaders in the church who are unaffected by positions of influence, that are not corrupted by power, but also unafraid to speak the truth in love, trusting God every step of the way. You know, I have pastored Grace Church now for three years, and I, have, I deeply love the body here. I am deeply in love and impressed with our leadership team. I am so thankful for my friend and my mentor, Ed Trenner, who led this church for so long, for all the elders that are a part of this body. Uh, I am so thankful for the the pattern of faithfulness that has been seen over the years, over and over again, year by year, that they have shown. The faithfulness that this congregation has shown in supporting leaders, in in building up leaders, in raising up leaders, is a beautiful picture, is a healthy model. And our prayer is that it will continue to grow even stronger. But humble, bold leaders are, are not afraid to speak of two things which some church leaders seem to be allergic to. Church membership and church discipline. Two things that are not popular today. Church membership reflects a commitment to a local church in attendance, in giving, in prayer, in service, traveling together as aliens and strangers on, our road, on the road to heaven. The church is not a loose affiliation of people who happen to hold the same roughly the same beliefs the church is not a club the church is not a building the church is not just a nonprofit with a handy dandy mission statement and 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 goals the church is a regular assembly of people who profess and give evidence that they have been saved by god's grace alone through faith alone by christ alone for god's glory alone that's the church Local living and loving group of people that are committed to Christ and each other. A community that is countercultural. A community that displays Christ like love. That is very countercultural. And church membership is only for believers. The church's testimony to a believer's faith, by the way. Hebrews 13 17. What does it say? Hebrews 13 and verse 17, speaking of our response. To leaders in the church. says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls. As those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. But they will give an account. Church leaders will give an account. For those who are under their care. I will give an account. Our elders will give an account. Our pastors will give an account. And not simply a statement. That a decision was made one day. For Christ. No, we will need to give an informed testimony that a person is faithfully bearing fruit for the gospel, that their life has been changed by God. And this is is really where church discipline comes in, uh, giving parameters to church membership. See, the idea seems really negative to people today, but if, if we cannot say how a Christian is not supposed to live, how can we say how he or she is supposed to live? Each local church has a biblical responsibility to guard against compromising the church's witness to the gospel. The church is a community of believers led by biblically qualified and accountable leaders that preaches the word, that administers the Lord's Supper and baptism and practices the elements of church discipline. Therefore, I ask that you would continue to pray for current and future leaders of this church. That they would walk humbly with God and boldly act in his strength. See, God wants believers to be in fellowship with a local church under the authority of its leaders. This accountability is very important. That's why a local church is vital rather than meeting with a friend on a Sunday morning or bouncing from church to church unattached or being content to be part of the the universal church. You need to be known and knowing. Okay, last mark of a God-pleasing church. Last mark is God-confident outreach. God-confident outreach. Living and sharing the gospel at home, as a church, in the community, and the world, so others will know Jesus. G.K. Chesterton said this, We do not want a church that will move with the world. We want a church that will move the world. The idea is that Jesus came to earth to seek and save that which was lost. So that's what we must be about. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. John chapter 20 and verse 21. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 47, the last verse in our passage. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And what was happening? Well, the Lord was doing something. The Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Those who were coming to faith in Christ. Day by day, God was doing that. They were witnessing a movement of God. That's what we ought to be witnessing. A movement of God where day by day, people are adding to our number those who are being saved. And when we fill this up, we'll go start another church. We should be seeing this. Jesus came to earth to seek and save the lost. We want every man, woman, boy, and girl uh, engaged in reaching others for Christ. See, the gospel changes us from the inside out. And therefore, the church should be filled with people who winsomely address people's hopes and aspirations with Christ and his saving work. He is the only answer. So our hope and prayer is that we will see conversions of all people. Rich and poor, highly educated, less educated, men, women, boys, girls, old, young, married, single, all races. We must welcome those who, in our midst who are exploring the claims of Christ, who are, who are not quite sure and they're, they're, they're trying to understand Christianity. See, evangelism is not getting people to make a decision. Uh, It's not proving that God exists, which is a good thing, by the way. The Bible does. It's not making a good case for the truth for Christianity, which also is a good thing. It's not inviting someone to a meeting. To evangelize is to declare on the authority of God that what he has done to save sinners, to warn people of their lost condition, as, as our brother Pete did so well this morning, and then to direct them to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, That's evangelism. It's it's a God-honoring act that we can do on earth, but not in heaven. So therefore, pray that we will be used by God to reach many. Pray for future church-planting efforts of grace. We at Grace, our leadership, we have a vision for planting churches both locally and globally. But as I close, let me say this. For all who hear these words, it is very important to understand the gospel message. Very important to understand the gospel of the grace of God in Christ on which the church is built. The first aspect of that is that God is God. God is God. He is sovereign, He is the creator, He is the righteous judge. Nehemiah 9:6 You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. We're accountable to God, first and foremost. But mankind is sinful. We are created by God to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. But man sinned and therefore disobeyed God's law and separated himself from God's presence. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God Romans three twenty three. But then Christ's death was the substitute payment for the penalty that we deserve for our sin. The God's only provision for forgiveness is Christ's substitutionary death. Isaiah fifty three six. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, Jesus. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given, uh, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. John 14.6, Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. So we need to respond to this good news in repentance, in belief, in faith, turning away from our sin and our self-sufficiency and our failures even. Turn to God. Trusting in the shed blood of Jesus. Mark 1.15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Acts 16.31. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. If you have not yet come to faith in Christ. To believe in his death and his resurrection. Now is the time of salvation. Now is the time to answer God's call to believe. To be a called out one. To show yourself as a called out one. Are you a Christian? You can answer yes, praise God, and then go out and confidently reach others with the same gospel by which you were reached. But if your answer is no, then go talk to the person next to you who said yes. Gospel-pleasing, God-pleasing church is committed to reaching people and making disciples. Multiplying churches both locally and globally. Engaged in a continuous campaign of gospel living and gospel speaking. That's it. There you have it. The church must be a holy, united, loving community, committed to God and what matters to Him. As the worship team comes back up, let me just say this. These things that matter to God can't be done in human strength, can't be done in our own efforts, only can be done as the Holy Spirit moves in us and through us for His glory. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for for this privilege we have to come before you in prayer and around your word. We thank you, Lord. We trust you to do what only you can do in us and through us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.